And welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kevin. And me, Rob. And we are here to talk about a whole new series of Star Trek. Once again, Rob has gotten to binge a massive, fresh pile of Star Trek episodes. And he's here to tell us how it looked at fast forward speed. Yeah, a fresh steaming pile of new youth orientated animated Trek if you don't mind me saying. Of course, we are here to talk about Star Trek Prodigy and we are up to episode 12 as we sit here in real time. The first 10 episodes were released some time ago yes. and we're now two episodes into this run of the second half of season one. So what was the first half of season one of Prodigy like for you, Rob? For me, it was very much a case of, yeah, as always with any type of new show, orientating myself around, okay, where am I? What is this? How do I feel about all this type of stuff? And a very different angle, really leaning into the extraterrestrial, the alien life forms. No actual humanoids at all in this, apart from a humanoid hologram. But really starting at a place where you can sympathize and support and root for the characters, no matter what level of commitment you have for them, because they are imprisoned and oppressed and they are seeking... Oh, yeah. Well and truly set up as underdogs from the beginning. Yeah. And coming from Australia, we love a good underdog. So I'm, ah, sure, there's nice. that, I'm sure there's that Canadian mentality as well. So Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly are used to residing in someone's shadow. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, as always, it had a, a very cocky, sure of themselves lead focal character that I always have a little bit of a tendency to cringe at. Yes. Hence, hence the reason why, and it still bewilders people, I don't like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But there was enough in there in the way of these unique approaches. Some alien species that have appeared before in the show and some brand spanking new ones. And it's setting up those little breadcrumbs along the way of finding out who they are and what their past is and and they're adapting to the to the structures and goals of starfleet which is fun to watch but is so very much geared towards a child family friendly approach to star trek which we haven't really seen before it's a shame the name was already taken because i think they really could have titled this series star trek the next generation <laughs> <laughs> definitely very much so yeah. And those underdogs looking from the outside about, oh, this is something we can believe in and focus. And the music score is great, the, especially the opening credits music. And then they've done a Voyager thing. They've brought in a, uh, an experienced muso hand just to do the theme music. You were going to say they brought in a ship that the uh, the engine pylons tilt. Those pylons the, tilt. As soon as I saw them yep. tilt in the first credits, I went, ah, Kevin's going to be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the cast are great. Yeah, speaking of the cast, before we go too far, of the main cast, let's count down from three and we will both at the same time say who our favorite character is. Oh. I want to see if it's the same, all right? Three, two, one, Gwen. zero. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. I am happy we have different favorite characters. <laughs> so one of us can be proven wrong. <laughs> well, zero is coming in close, <laughs> close second. Zero. Zero is awesome. I love, I think Zero is the Spock of the series or the data of the series. Yes. The true, like, different one, the outsider, very logical. But we've now seen them, like, broken in the final events of the first half of this season. 
their appearance causing pain to one of their shipmates and now they're like beating themselves up about it. And just that emotional arc has me captivated. I love what the actor does with every line of dialogue, no matter how trivial anything is, everything is interesting coming out of their mouth. Yes, and how the um, the animation especially captures, like how do you give life to an entity that has no form? And so that makeshift mm. body it's been given and how it can either float or walk. The magic of animation that brings this lifeless 3D model into existence and how just a tilt of its head or a raise of its hand or how it glides off in some ways can be so emotionally powerful yeah it's yeah. it's yeah it's fascinating to watch and something we haven't seen within the spectrum of star trek characters of such broad backgrounds and so we yeah. have to explore these different cultures and different approaches to a starfleet situation where's gwyn pushing the right buttons for you yeah i love especially as there's quite a bit of connection with gwyn and zero in that case of they're wanting to make up for the crimes of their past or the wrongs that they have done and that guilt has mm -hmm. carried them on and have they found a new purpose and direction. We love a guilty conscience. Love a guilty conscience and trying to, to wipe that red, that red slate clean from your past mm -hmm. from different ways, you know, when from her inaction and zero from their active involvement. But yet there's a great, there's a great pride and there's a great honor to Gwen, there's a great humility to her and there's yeah, that damaged soul that finds hope. And so when there's quite Star Trek-y type moments and it's leaned into in that childlike uh, naivety in some ways, there's some moments, especially in the most recent episode where it's very much a case of, oh yeah, this is a very child-friendly way of getting out of this situation. Mm. But that pain that she feels and that guilt and that darkness that she feels from her past and what her family lineage is and their legacy is to step out from that and find her own path and her own, create her own legacy is something that really appeals to me i think she's a great powerful character as well just in like she's an awesome fighter yes when you're freed of the shackles of physical reality and you're doing <laughs> an animated show you know, create a character who can do some kickflips and has an awesome sword that can morph out of her arm. Yes. Like, that is awesome stuff to see. So, yeah, all the characters have, have really endeared themselves to me. But, but yeah, Gwen, it just has that, that making up for the sins of the past always appeals to this bitter old man. You talked about the music being great. I think we'd be remiss not to mention just the visual spectacle that is this series. My jaw dropped the first episode I watched of this. I thought, this is a kid's show? Like, this looks like, in many ways, the most expensive Star Trek show. <laughs> um, it is gorgeous. It is colorful. And it is creative and very polished. Certainly at least in still frames. If I have one wish it could be better, it is that the animation does seem sometimes a little jerky, mm -hmm. a little stilted, a little un unrefined. People like start and stop moving very suddenly. Yeah. And I guess there's only so much you can do on a Nickelodeon budget. And maybe they chose to optimize for the beauty over the refineness of motion. For me, this reminds me a lot of one of my favorite series within Star Wars, the series Rebels, which is... Which I've never seen. Rebels is 
incredible. I absolutely adore it. And it started out very kid-centric. It was one of the first shows after the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney. And yeah, that animation and that jerky movement was a part of it and very limited in their facial expressions. So mm-hmm. relied heavily on the voice actors and what performance they could give and the emotions they could emit through the quite limited range of movement and facial expression. But as the show went along, it became more adult and dealt with more grown-up issues and serious darkness and all this type of stuff. I can see uh, maybe a similar projection for this show as well. Having Nickelodeon behind it may restrict them a little, but there's still some heavy stuff that's been alluded to at this start. But yes, there's some the visuals when it comes to landscapes and creating the environments that the planets that they're on and beautiful star fields and vistas and how the ship does its proto warp and all that type of stuff is really beautiful. The blending of colors and the shapes and how it reflects off the proto star is magical. And yeah, it's very much a enhanced Voyager opening credits scene for their opening titles. Definitely. I think we can probably say that Gwyn and Dahl are like the protagonists of this series. You talked a bit about Gwyn there. Dahl, you mentioned as one of those obnoxious (laughs) characters that rubs you the wrong way. So my question for you is, has Dahl had his Mariner turn yet? Has he won you over yet? He has. And his moment was in one of my favorite episodes of the new season because it was all those beautiful kisses to the past was the Kobayashi Maru episode where you had everyone (laughs) it was just a roll call you had how they used deceased actors but they used recordings from previous episodes so you had nimoy back you had rene bourgeois back you had you had scotty back you had all that filling that space and to see someone do a a holodeck version of the Kobayashi Maru and just going again and again and again and again (laughs) and seeing the almost like a groundhog day situation to see that that cockiness just wear down and pick up again. And every situation, there is no way of getting out of it. I loved how that really brought them into a different shape. Yeah, I am mostly there with him. I I guess I'm like, I am no longer put off by him, Yeah, but I am, I'm still waiting to fall in love with him as a character. Yeah. Like, I think there's probably another twist or another arc yet to come that will turn him into the character I look forward to seeing each week. Right now, they seem to be playing a lot with, okay, now he's the captain and he knows what is expected of a captain, but he feels a sense of imposter syndrome Hmm. about it. They're not going to buy that I'm in charge here thing. And Hologram Janeway, who we haven't even mentioned yet, (laughs) is coaching him through this stuff. I like it in theory. In practice, I'm not feeling the emotional beats yet. Yeah, I think that because like he doesn't even know who he is. So mm. that's a big factor. And when you... I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Untying, and I hope it's satisfying. I mean, you don't create a character with that question over them without hopefully having some satisfying place to take it. Exactly. But I couldn't even guess where they're going with it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a key thing. And it's a challenging thing as well. Like we're talking about to find that connection with someone when they don't even know their place in the world or where or the universe and what their species is or all that or their culture because that's so much ingrained within star trek of what the vulcans bring and their approach to life the klingons and what all that type of stuff there's the same with odo odo trying to figure out who he is but he had lived on his own for so long he set up these rules of law for him and so when he found out where he comes from 
and was so against everything who he was that was yeah. shattering. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, Tyler's more like just I'm generic cocky guy who's getting an imposter syndrome. So it'll be interesting to see whether that's like you said, satisfying payoff or not. Well, I hope it enriches yeah. Dahl as much as it enriched Odo, because yeah, that really did. That was a real satisfying <laughs> arc when they found that. What are you gonna do sure. with the ultimate man who goes by the law and wants to do good? He comes from a race of fascists. Yeah. <laughs> The other one I'm waiting to see where they're going with is Murph. The we have just had revealed the melanoid slime worm. Like he, it could just be that he is there for comic relief and to make funny noises for the young kids and to look cute. But I feel like there is there's got to be some reason for him. The past few episodes, he has literally just been carried around by other cast members with nothing to do. Well, it's starting to get awkward. Yes, it is. But yeah, the, they did. Do a little, a nice little possible teaser in the most recent episode where Murph started to get a bit sick and upset with all this talk about time travel. Yeah. Temporal I if anomalies. That's a thing. It's got to be. Yeah. Speaking of time travel, the, the core plot element that has now been revealed, this time travel, time traveler from a dark future coming back and intending to change the past yes. for their own purposes. That's a pattern we've seen several times over the decades in Star Trek. Nero? Nero? Was that? Nero, I'm thinking in the final episode of Star Trek Voyager, we have future Janeway That's come right. and help Voyager get home. And... There's Crewman Daniels from Enterprise. He's not any, everyone's favorite, that, that storyline, but he came back from a future where the Federation was in, in ruins and he came back to try to, to change things for the better. So yeah, this, this thing happens again and again. What has got my interest this time that it feels so fresh is this idea, this question of what if first contact caused a war? Yes. What if the Federation reaching out with open arms of peace to a world that they deemed ready for it caused a civil war that destroyed that civilization? And just wrecked everything. I can't everything. believe we've never grappled with that question before. It is so, so rich with possibility, unexplored possibility. Look, I'm going to say it. I think it shifts the continuity. It's a major, major continuity shifter within the franchise. It's like bringing in a whole fleet of artificial intelligence ships and it's, this is are you telling me it's gonna get it's gonna get solved next episode and uh, it'll be done with look if it does i'll eat all the humble pie and when it doesn't <laughs> i'll just go oh, just to notch it up to experience yeah i really hope that they do something worthwhile with that idea because it is rare that i see what seems to me at least a completely fresh idea in star trek and beautiful work beautiful work by john noble with mm. the voice and bringing that pain and anger about he's willing to shatter the temporal laws to go back and save his people which is yeah, a noble thing but a, a bloodthirsty cold calculating approach to it and almost a justification of disliking the federation but we don't know the whole story so there's so many layers to it in last week's episode you asked the rhetorical but very valid question how good is kate mulgrew oh my god 
talk to me about Hologram Janeway Look, and now Vice Admiral Janeway. I'm very excited. I was very excited. I kind of had a sneak peek because, yeah, social media is horrible at keeping secrets. So I was aware that Chicote was involved in some way, shape or form. And I knew that they were going to do more than just have Hologram Janeway. They're going, all right, Hologram Janeway. She's got the old updo like she did in the first couple of seasons of Voyager. Mm -hmm. Got the same coffee mug. Same Although coffee mug. Vice Admiral Janeway was also drinking from that coffee mug, if I didn't miss my uh, cue there. But in the most recent episode, she was having tea because it was doctor's orders <laughs> oh. and she was not happy at all. Yes, just uh, her face in, in the replicator ordering tea. Like, she didn't have to say <laughs> that she was being prevented from drinking coffee, just the way she ordered tea, sold it. <laughs> Yeah, Kate Mulgrew is an absolute champion. She's the dark horse of Star Trek. People should be focusing much more of their time and effort on Everyone celebrates Patrick Stewart, but he's been celebrated for decades, and he's got multiple franchises that he can get swarmed in. Yeah, let's give some more love and attention to those dark horses who work their patooties off and don't get the recognition they deserve. She's an outstanding performer, an outstanding actor, and she's shifted beautifully into voice work, the range she brings to, to, to her hologram and her updated version of herself is excellent. She's a great addition to it and playing that beautiful mentor type role and really embracing the kids, which is great. What a delight. I, if you told me as I was watching season one of Voyager that all these years later, she would be episode by episode introducing the next generation of Star Trek fans one by one to the concepts that are core foundational elements of what makes Star Trek, I would have been bemused and delighted. <laughs> and she's somehow surprising me with each episode of how well she does it as well. Yeah, there's been the t those tantalizing hints of mentions or what's what has been happening to Janeway. And to now mm. just go, yeah, okay, we've done our Deep Space Nine episode in Lower Decks, and we've got the next generation coming back for season three of Picard. We've got Let's give our love now to, to Voyager and to make this like a backdoor follow-up to what happened yeah. to the Voyager cast is excellent. So I'm thinking possibly there might need to be a concert that the Prodigy people need to hear and maybe a clarinet might come into... <laughs> Maybe. You never know. I think it's somehow more likely we will run across a certain Talaxian since we're <laughs> rambling around the Delta Quadrant again. Yes, it would be great to. I, I never thought I'd say this. It'd be great to see him again. An animated form. In animated no form. But yeah, um, I, I'm really loving the 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 nods to to Voyager. Yeah, just dropping in little things like the quote from the recent episode of sometimes the hardest thing is to take a leap of faith. Yes, is just like. A bold-faced, remember that episode of Voyager? I bet you don't. You should go watch go it. Go watch it now. Yeah. Yeah. She's a superstar and she, she is just, yeah, more of her in every shape or form. It'd be great. I'm looking forward to the, I'm probably going to explode when you just, when you finally get to the moment of meeting hologram Janeway and real Janeway. It's just, oh. <laughs> yeah. I have to say her new ship, the Dauntless, looks real dumb though. I do not like that ship. It is very outside of the what we expect in the shape of, of Federation ships. It's a bit too many rounded edges. It has no, no sharp edges. It looks like a floppy mushroom in space. And most Federation ships are so like flat. And this one is very chunky and very tube-like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do not like. <laughs> so yes, the most recent episode that we got to, episode 12 or episode two of part 
two of season one. Like you said last week, series have no meaning anymore. That's how Nickelodeon plays. They play fast and loose with structuring of series. Let, let Sleeping Borg lie. Yes. And how did you find this episode? I liked it a lot better on second viewing than on first. Mm -hmm. And there are some, there are still some things that bother me about it. Obviously, this was the episode where new fans to Star Trek get taught what the Borg are. That's true. But somehow I feel like the Borg were sold short a bit in this episode. They are, they're sleeping damaged Borg that are not actually that dangerous or scary. And I am not sure that the, the crew of the Protostar take the right lesson away. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the introduction of this element, the Borg cube, is more, to use the word you've used now and then, ham-fisted than usual. Like, it is literally, they're in the middle of a conversation, and the ship says, proximity alert, we ran into another ship. And they walk out, and a Borg cube is just sitting there. And it's like, wow, okay. In all this space, this is, don't worry about how we ran into it. It's just there now. And just at the moment where... They have a weapon that they need to figure out how to defuse. The biggest problem that I had on first viewing that I think corrected for me now that I've given it a second watch was this, it felt extremely tenuous to me that we've got a bomb on our ship. There's a Borg cube there, something we've never heard of before. We are going to raid the Borg ship for some knowledge in order to defuse this weapon that the Borg have never seen before either. It just felt real thin as an excuse to put themselves in such mortal danger. <laughs> and Janeway did her best to talk them out of it, but I don't know. I think she could have <laughs> gone a little further. Yeah, it does seem a little bit like they've been doing so well in how they mm. integrate, unlike Lower Decks, which has just piled on the references and made it a part of the joke in some episodes of just, we're just going to list we are just going to list references right here as Boindler runs around screaming, whereas Prodigy has been quite subdued in that way and focused on introducing the clar clarifying the dynamics and the relationships and getting little bits of information about these new species and being hints here and here of well-known species like we've had a Ferengi in there, obviously. And when they finally reached uh, the Federation station last episode, they had a species. The Denobulan. Yes, similar as the, the Doctor from Enterprise. But yeah, this was in very much a way of they just went, and here's the bulk. Yeah. And no real lead up to it. And no, yeah, and like you said, it just happened. They just go, oh, and proximity alert, and it's there. And maybe they can help us get, <laughs> and let's just do that. And The idea of the mission, I warmed to it on second viewing because the things that I missed, which passed very quickly in dialogue, but it is established first that the thing that makes them decide to do this is Janeway describes the Borg as being able to adapt and disable, adapt to and disable any weapon. Yes. And so, okay, I see why you make that logical leap. Yeah. Then. But if I were Janeway, I would have gone, no, 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 no. <laughs> they only adapt once you attack them with it. <laughs> and we don't want to do that. She missed a uh, crucial piece of information. Yeah. Classic hologram problem. The other very quick line of dialogue that almost feels inserted late in the process to make this easier to swallow is that the cube has been disabled by a neurolytic pathogen that has disabled both the nanoprobes and the drones on board 
the cube. I completely missed that the first time around. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> Janeway says it makes the mission risky but doable now, which is better for me. <laughs> I went and looked it up because neurolytic pathogen did not sound random to me. And sure enough, that is how future Janeway disables the Borg Queen in the finale of Star Trek Voyager and leaves the Borg crippled. So what we learn here if you're connecting the dots, is that this is one of the Borg cubes that was crippled by the USS Voyager in the fin final episode of that series. Well, there you go. And for if you want more obscure references, they've mentioned transparent aluminum. So that was... <laughs> For me, a fan of Star Trek 4, I went, ooh! Transparent aluminum. They had Jacob Pog looking for a keyboard. A, even a keyboard will do. I'll use a keyboard. How quaint. How quaint. Yeah. <laughs> Talk into your mouse right now, Jacob. So yes, and this episode very much leaned into, I have never seen the ball go down that easily in my life. Mm. No matter how much they have set up that Zero is this powerful creation and all this type of stuff. So it is in many ways plausible for them to be able to do such yeah. a thing. And it's not like permanently disabled just enough for them to get out and escape. And it's more about the emotional journey about Zero finding their place and connecting because they're feeling so much guilt about what they did to Gwyn and their past to find that Gwyn helping Zero come back into the light, which is if it was that easy, first contact would have been a lot shorter film. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and just flipping the line, resistance is not futile. I went, oh, it's that easy. <laughs> it's that easy. Yeah. Thanks, kids. Yeah, that yeah, I'll give it to Zero. They have a powerful mind. But I will also pay, this episode does have some proper, creepy, scary Borg moments. When Gwyn's like making her way through the mm. Borg drones and the one like turns and looks at her. And just watches. Yeah. Yeah, just watches. So good. And the rest of the cast do get captured. They do get put on the assimilation tables. Like, things are going wrong. They don't just skate through this adventure. Oh, yeah. And, like, the shot of Zero having to hook up to the to the collective and that shot, mm. and like I said about just little movements, just that shot of Zero's dome dropping and you just go, oh, they are gone. And yep, when yep. they come in fully assimilated was a, a shock a genuinely shocking moment oh how do they do that with all that animation marvelous marvelous i i noted the other big thing that rubbed me the wrong way about this episode was admiral janeway's chief medical officer noam played prominently by jason alexander though barely recognizable very unrecognizable quite an affect but he is playing the Tellarite medical officer who is working to revive Gwyn's father on board the ship. And just that whole scene where he's sarcastically saying, you're welcome. If he's showing any signs of life at all, it's because I'm a miracle worker. And you sure know how to kiss some tail. And you're there going, that's right. Wow. He put his sassy pants on tonight. Yeah. I want to ask you, because I, I don't have my mind made up. Is it the performance that's the problem or is it the script that's the problem here? Because to me, all those lines came off as mean spirited. And I was just sitting there going, don't you dare talk to Janeway that way. <laughs> you should be thrown out an airlock for that insubordination. <laughs> yeah, it is that case of it seems like we've missed an episode or two of that season. Mm. So I, go, I was there going, who the hell are you? Yeah. yeah. I don't know who you are. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And why are you insulting the Trill officer? They're doing the best they can. They're actually doing great work and they're, yeah. they haven't got their, their sassy pants on. Thank you very much, doctor. Yeah. I think it was bad writing. It was like leaning, they were leaning into creating what the character was, but it just came across as mean spirit and they're going, no, if, we're all It in. felt like something that to me wouldn't have even worked in Lower Decks. Yeah. and But the type of comedy would have been better at home in Lower Decks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel right because I don't feel as if mm. I know the character well enough to go where that's coming from. It just came out of nowhere yeah. and I went, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a shame because Jason Alexander is famously a huge fan and has appeared in Star Trek before. Star Trek Voyager he appeared in. Yeah, Think Tank is the one where he's, yeah, the, he's, he is part of a motley crew of people who promise they can find Voyager a way home for the right price. Of course, yes. Well, he, yeah, he's a wonderful performer. I love his, his, I got to see him live years ago. He came out and did some Jason Alexander variety Christmas show, even though he is Jewish, which he, <laughs> which he, which he mentioned in the show. He's a great performer, professional, like old school Broadway star but yes it's good that he's there and hopefully they he brings a bit more range to this character who's a bit one note sassy and frankly annoying but if anyone can bring it around yeah. it'll be jason alexander who made one of the most yeah who knows maybe we're meant to dislike him and we're going to be won over to our <laughs> shock and surprise we can we live in you know, in federation hope so this episode as we said introduces the Borg to a new generation of viewers. So Rob and I thought we would do a bit of back and forth on our favorite Borg moments. Yeah. Who should go first, Rob? I'll go first. You've been doing such a wonderful job. I'll go right into it. My, I can't relate to my, I can't do my usual thing of going to D Space Nine because there's no real Borg in D Space Nine. No, I mean, we have the revisit of Wolf 359 in the very first, like in the pilot, the emissary. Yes. But that is not exactly. The Borg is the genesis of the character that is Benjamin Sisko. Yes. Like the, but apart from that, they are absent. They are absent. So I'm going to go to my favorite real appearance and my first real encounter with the Borg, uh, Star Trek First Contact. Ha! Was that on your list? Oh, it sure was, but I trusted you to cover it <laughs> off. Thing. If it wasn't on both of our lists, I would have been dismayed, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it is the seminal entry for the Borg. Jonathan Frakes knows how to shoot them, knows how to bring them to the screen better than anybody else, and brings the most cinematic of the new foes in against the Federation for pretty much the entire Kirk run. It, the Klingons are there in some way, shape, or form, right from the motion picture just at the start, and how they've filtered in through three, and they've pretty much always been there. So this was the introduction of going, we've let go of the shackles of generations, this is us. And let's refer to our continuity, let's refer to our TV show, let's bring that to the forefront, and to see the Borg infiltrate, take over the Enterprise, and just those sci-fi visual effects moments that you can't do on a TV budget, so you see the almost vampire-like bites of them enter the crew's body, and that is just so visceral and so unnerving. The reveal of crew members being assimilated and taken over and the horrifying reveal of that. There's this real sense of dread that comes across in such a beautiful way with that cinematic budget and that cinematic look. Frey captures them 
so beautifully. It gets that balance between the horror of the Borg. So it's like a, an alien invasion, space under siege attack on the Enterprise. And then you've got the hope and joy of breaking out of post-nuclear war into space travel for the first time in a long time. So yes, the Borg are at their best in our first contact. The Borg changed significantly in first contact. We had the introduction of the Borg Queen yes. as a whole concept. Uh, that was not something that had been established before, but it was also a natural evolution of them as the insect model. Yes. Of every hive has a queen, so we have the Borg Queen. It also notched up the horror quite significantly. Up until this point, the Borg were established as a cybernetic race, and there was a certain amount of body horror of just seeing the actor covered in those implants. Mm. But first contact is the first time we saw assimilation occur in real time as an aggressive act. The downed crew member with the, the tendrils yes. spreading under his skin over his face, like that is something we had never seen before. The idea that Borg assimilation was a means of direct attack. Yes, exactly. And that violation of the body as opposed to when within that TV budget of Next Generation, where it's just, yeah, like you said, putting upon layers of metal metal clothing on top of your humanoid body. But this was, yeah. we see that violation within, mm -hmm. the, within the body and that invasion with under the skin, literally, and into the bloodstream and how that digital, mechanical, cold collective takes over that warm, safe space that is our body. So I'm going to take us back by comparison to the very first introduction of the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation Season 2, Episode 15, Q-Who. Yes, it was a Q episode Hi. as well. If you're a fan of the Borg and you have not seen their first introduction, let me tell you, it holds up. Mm -hmm. It is worth going back and watching. In Q-Who, q, -Who, q appears on the Enterprise and says, I've been kicked out of the Collective. I want to join the crew of the Enterprise. This is where I have all my best kicks. And P Picard says, no, thank you. We don't trust you. And Q says, you need me. I'll prove it. Snaps his fingers and sends the ship into the Delta Quadrant uh. to come face to face with the Borg, decades before humanity normally would have. And the whole point of the episode is that the Enterprise and the crew and Picard are completely ill-equipped for this encounter. Yes. And this episode is such a masterclass in, in slow ratcheting up of tension. This thing that the Borg do of ignoring you until you are actually a threat... That is a plot device in this original episode to make the Borg seem less dangerous than they actually are. They send a scout on board the ship and they just start harmlessly scanning the engine room. And Picard's like, hey, good to meet you, new form of life. But things go wrong very quickly. And before long, the Enterprise is fleeing for its life with firing photon torpedoes that are having no effect on the, the ship that has learned to regenerate. And Picard basically begs Q and says, I believe you now. We are completely ill-prepared. Please send us back. It is, there is no victory in this episode. And the end is a realization of Q got us out of that, but now the Borg know we exist yeah. and they are coming. Yes. 
so much of it is here in the very first episode, the instant adaptation to phasers. The second time you try and shoot a Borg, it doesn't work. That was here in the first one. The ignoring intruders that don't pose a threat. Drones in slots along a wall in a sprawling cavernous space. That amazing shot at the start of Star Trek First Contact. There is a slightly more low-budget version of it right here in the first episode. Wow. And it is just as breathtaking. So yeah, if you call yourself a Borg fan, I challenge you, go back and watch the first one when they were the pure uncut stuff. I may have yeah, seen yeah. it. I think I have seen it years ago. But it does that case. It was especially because like in Voyager, when they do a whole thing about a Seven of Nine's parents, like observing them and coming at it from a point of view where you've only seen the Borg in that main villain type role. And they use that whole thing of Oh, just act, don't attack them so they won't see you as a threat. They only do that for a little bit and then they ratchet it up. But to do it in such a, a slow process in that first episode, you forget that this is, this is a species that you could just watch from the outside. And that, cause when I watched it, Voyager, I went, this could be possible at all. This is the bull. Of course they're going to attack, but you need to remember how they've been introduced and yeah. And to not win and not learn and just be taken away by the whim of Q and then to have that dreadful moment of they know who we are and they're coming. The biggest difference with the Borg here in their introduction and where they would end up in First Contact and beyond is that the Borg were introduced as harvesters of technology. Right. The, they answered a mystery that had been established way back in season one of TNG in an episode called The Neutral Zone, where space stations on the border of Federation Romulan space had gone missing. They had been scooped up out of the planet's surface, and it was revealed later here in Q-Who that the Borg had been behind that, that the Borg had been making incursions into Federation space unbeknownst to anyone. And that's a bit of retconning, uh, isn't it? That, I don't think that It was, is a little yeah. bit. It is a little bit. The other thing I learned today in researching this is Seven of Nine's parents going on those duck blind missions also predates in Star Trek chronology the first introduction of the Borg here in Q-Who. Yes. So the idea is that her parents had gotten wind of these mysteries and rumors that a race called the Borg were behind this. And they got sucked into the transwarp conduit behind one of these cubes that was like yeeting out of Federation space yeah. while they were still a mystery to everyone. So yeah, Seven of Nine's parents encountered the Borg even before the crew of the Enterprise did. Well, there you go. It all makes sense. And because mm. especially that was a key episode for Next Generation because they'd spent so much trying to find that new... Klingon, really. Yes. They tried so hard in season one to push the Ferengi. Also, what I learned in researching this today is that the Borg were originally going to be an insectoid race. They were converted to cyborgs for budgetary purposes. Of course. But when they were going to be insectoids, they were connected to those parasites that we saw in the very scary episode, Conspiracy, which Lower Decks recently redubbed the butt bugs. <laughs> so the butt bugs, which disappear at the end, and then there's the signal going off into space in order to, they will be seen again. That was originally intended as like a teaser for the Borg, which were going to be this insectoid race, but ultimately left dangling those butt bugs. And I'm very happy. <sighs> 
you for that. <laughs> the fun bugs were left dangling. They were, yes. Just uh, take from that visual feast in your mind what you will. So, yeah, it's from humble beginnings to cinematic scale. The Borg certainly easily adjusted into that cinematic world uh, of, mm. of Star Trek and were absolutely terrifying. Yeah. What's your next one? My next one is not so much... It is a Borg episode, but it's also like more the horrifying effects of what the Borg can do. And we have mentioned it before in previous episodes. It is, it's an episode that is solely resting on the, on the, on the shoulders of the incredible powerhouse that is Jerry Ryan. I'm looking at Infinite Regress from season five, episode seven of Voyager, where seven of nine is having complications. She has multiple personality disorder in the fun sci-fi way. And I do that in inverted commas. Yes. <laughs> in big inverted commas. Let's not use multiple personality disorder and fun in a sentence, Rob, without doing inverted commas. So she starts to, her connection with the hive mind as being the collective has been severed, but she starts to regress back into the personalities of people who have been assimilated by the Borg. So she becomes a Ferengi. She becomes a, a, a Vulcan. She becomes these different people who had a life, who had love, who had fear, who had loss, and had ultimately lost everything they had because they were unlucky enough to cross the path of the Borg. And it creates this really, it, it's a balance of, it's somber, it's heartbreaking, but it's also a tour de force performance from, from Jerry Ryan, who'd been with the show barely a season, to be given that strength, to give, be given that trust, and to step out of the, the limitation of what she was given the role for, to be eye candy, for her to go, I am not here just to be ogled. I am a force of my own device creation. And it's just amazing how she shifts from one personality to the next, how she shows what these what life has been lost and it's a great representation not directly involving the borg but showing what just how far reaching the misery they put upon the world which is an incredible balance to get in an episode of sci-fi television definitely an actor's choice that one yeah. I, uh, I, it's not one i would have picked but i completely understand why you do yeah amazing not the flashiest borg episode for sure but Perhaps one of the harshest lights that's shone on the collective trauma of each individual that has been one by one mercilessly assimilated into this collective. One thing we've talked about before is the hard fought victories. We don't want yeah. easy we don't want easy solutions. So if some person's come back from the dead, they need there needs to be a lot that you sacrifice to get to that point. We're looking at you, James C. Kirk. So this episode for me is a good way of going of showing how hard it is. It's not just, oh, we'll take a Borg and we'll make them sexy. It's a case of, no, this is a hard, painful, dangerous transition and finding your humanity and your, your personality and your future through all this trauma, through decades. You know, 709 was assimilated as a child, they've lost everything. And so this is a good way of showing we may have seven of nine, but they have a struggle to find who they are now. They are no longer who they were because that child in many ways is dead, but they have to find their new self 
their new identification, which is part Borg, part human, and something new. So it's a great way of showing that struggle and showing that hard work and that challenge to get to a point of identity. For my second, I really struggle to pick one because <laughs> we're aiming for two each here, but I think I'm going to have to take an honorable mention and feel free to add one to the pile mm -hmm. if you wish as well. My honorable mention that I cannot leave off the list, but it's not my next pick, is the best of both worlds. It has to be mentioned. It has to be mentioned. Yeah. The two-parter that created the idea of two-parters, <laughs> the cliffhanger that created the idea of cliffhangers, season three, episode 26, and season four, episode one, in which Captain Picard is assimilated and becomes Locutus. I don't want to dwell on this because it is just an honorable mention, but it is interesting in the evolution of the Borg. This is the first episode where the idea that the Borg can assimilate other species mm. is even established. It's established in this episode as something exceptional. Like the idea that they bring, like they kidnap Picard and turn him into a Borg is if you don't know where the Borg go after this, it is like when you first, when I first watched this, it was like, oh, they, they can do that? Right. The Borg were their own race up until this point. Right. They did not assimilate other species. They grew their babies in drawers. That's what was established in Q-Who. So yes, they kidnap Picard and they address him by name. It is all very unusual, including the act of assimilation. They remark in a couple of lines of dialogue, I thought the Borg were only interested in our technology. And Picard says, it would seem their priorities have changed. And that's it. With that, it's waved away. Now the Borg are assimilators <laughs> yeah. of people too. But where I would like to take us is Next Generation Season 5, Episode 23, I, Borg, which is the introduction of our good friend Hugh, who popped up in recent seasons of Star Trek Picard. Yes. Hugh is the first individual freed from the collective. Yes. Even before Seven of Nine. The model for Seven of Nine, if you will, in which they discover a crashed Borg ship, rescue one lone survivor, and free him from the collective. And Geordi befriends the orphaned drone Hugh and starts to empathize with him, even as the Enterprise plots to plant a virus in his, in his brain that he can take back to the collective and wipe it out in, a, in an act of genocide that some might argue was still would still have been the right thing to do after all this time. But yeah, the more LaForge gets to know Hugh, the more he cannot uh, make his peace with what they are about to do to him. And the, uh, the wild card in this episode is Guinan. This is a great Guinan episode, possibly the best Guinan episode, because she's the one whose species has been destroyed by the boar. Yes. And she refuses to accept Geordi's word that Hugh is a person with his own individual thoughts, emotions, and feelings and should be treated as such. She's, it's a drone, it's an insect, send it back to the hive and destroy them all before they kill us. And uh, just a beautiful scene where Geordi says, I can't believe you would, like, what did you think when you met him? And she goes, I haven't met him. And he says, well, you think maybe you should before you condemn his entire race <laughs> to extinction? Just a beautiful argument between LaForge and Guinan. And 
Yeah, for me, one of the strongest episodes of the late seasons of Next Gen. I think I have seen I Borg, and and yes, I was quite sad with Hughes' end results. Done the dirty, yeah. yeah. Sacrificed on the altar of shock value in Picard, it seems. Yeah, Picard did a lot of that in season mm-hmm. one, which we are not happy about. Not happy. Like they did yeah. with sacrificing a certain young Borg escapee as well, just for the shock value <laughs> as well. I see you, Picard. Ichev! I see you, Picard, and I bite my thumb at thee. All right. I don't know what the uh, crew of the Protostar will be encountering next. Thank you, Rob. It was great to get into Prodigy with you. It's great to have you with me on this journey, and I can't wait to see what uh, the crew will be meeting next week. Well, thank you for waiting for me to catch up. Uh, I've been doing nothing but binging over the last couple of months, so I just need to just sit down and take a good breath and relax and wait for next week to watch episode 13. Someday we can binge the animated series together and we can go through the experience of catching up together because that's the only series of Star Trek I have not watched. Yeah, um, let, then let's do it. I'm, I am actually fascinated to watch it. All right. See you around the galaxy. I'll see you next time. Take care. Stay tuned. The best of both worlds is so good. Hey. That is my, that is my, you know, I told you to go back to the original with Q Who, but if you can spare a little more time, best of both worlds, it is TNG firing on all cylinders. I remember, um, yeah, I hadn't seen much of uh, Next Gen at that time, but there was so much talk about that story, like just mm. the ripples within the fandom and within nerddom was huge. So I, I remember going down to my local blockbuster or was it video easy i'm not sure and borrowing out because it was on vhs the two-parter and so i just dropped myself right in the middle of it and went this is outstanding yeah. work you know this is this is patrick stewart at his best everyone's firing on all their cylinders and yeah it'd be great to go back and revisit that paramount plus you gotta get yourself primed and ready